Let us pray. God, we know that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word speaks with life, with grace, with power. We pray that in this moment, your spirit would open our hearts to hear and receive your word with your grace, your life, and your power as you shape us more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Lenten season, we have been looking each week at a different spiritual practice of the church, a different practice by which the Holy Spirit shapes us, molds us, grows us into the likeness of Jesus. And we've looked at these practices by way of certain scriptures that, that undergird and inform and really bring about that practice. And so a few weeks back, we looked at the practice of joy and celebration. We looked at the practice of study. We have looked at the practice of hospitality. Last week we looked at the practice of fasting. And now today, the practice, the theme of confession and forgiveness. Our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A beautiful honoring of the life of Rick Nocta to the glory of God. Our New Testament reading comes from James chapter 5 verses 15 to 17. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read last week how a buddy of mine from high school is having a park named after him back in our little hometown of Wyoming, Ohio. His name is David Payne, and he really came to the fore of the spotlight in the Summer Olympics of 2008 when he won silver for the 100-meter hurdles. But far before David was famous, far before he'd even run on a track team, He played for a junior high recreation basketball team, and I was one of his teammates. And even then, David's speed was stunning. The opponent would shoot the ball, it would clank off the rim, and and before anyone knew what was going on, David will have swooped in, grabbed a rebound. We haven't begun to turn the other way to head down the court, and David is three or four paces away, crossing the half-court line by himself. We're still processing the fact there's a missed shot, probably someone should rebound it, and he's off to the next thing, making it go. 
I mean, it was amazing. My dad was the coach of the team. He likes to say to this day how he can take credit for shaping and training an Olympic athlete. When the Bible speaks and describes God's grace, it describes a pace, a speed that runs like David Payne. It is on the run, on the move, well before, and moving into new possibilities well before we've even processed the failure before us. I mean, the parable of the prodigal son in the first half of that story makes this story so famous, makes this point so famously. You recall the younger son asks for his inheritance early from the father. The father gives it to him. The younger son goes off into a far country and squanders the inheritance on dissolute living. Eventually, the younger son, right, is, is ashamed, he's starving, and he thinks to himself, I'm going to go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just take me back as a servant. He's got this whole thing worked out in his head, and he starts to go back. And then do you remember the next line? I love this line. But while he was still far off, While the younger son was still far off, has not said a word about confession aloud, his father saw him, was filled with compassion, and ran to his son, put his arms around his son, kissed him, clothed him anew. The word of forgiveness arrives before the word of confession is even uttered. The father's running embrace beats The confession, where sin abounded, grace aboundeth more. It is faster, it is fitter, it is fuller. Or Paul, he puts it in this language, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still standing, flat-footed, in the mire and mess of our stuff, with no thought of turning, No thought of confessing. Christ is off and running for us. Loving us to the point of death. Taking our sin upon himself. Blotting it out. Love so outpaces sin. In the church we have a word for this. It is called grace. This profound undeserved favor of God. Running towards us. Embracing us far before we even knew to look for God. Or wanted to follow God. In this particular grace, it's underscored time and again in the New Testament, but but also in the Old Testament, and in a very particular way in Psalm 32. Here again, Psalm 32, just these first two verses. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven or or lifted, whose, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, there keeps no record. But the literal Hebrew of those first couple phrases puts the word of forgiveness ahead of the word of sin. So verse 1, very literally, if you're reading it in Hebrew, happy are those who is forgiven transgression. The word of forgiven comes before the word transgression. Happy are those who covered over is their sin. Covered over arrives in the sentence before the word sin. And then again, verse 2. Happy are those who are not held by the Lord his guilt. A little awkward in English, but the declaration of not being held, the declaration of being free, that word arrives before the word of guilt. The word order here is meant to make the point that when we're talking about God, 
and the promise of God. One cannot even speak a word about sin or guilt before one first announces a word about forgiveness. You literally can't read the sentence in Hebrew without first saying and speaking a word of forgiveness before a word of sin is on your tongue. Because with God, forgiveness outpaces sin, overshadows sin, is stronger and has the final word. How often we think first a person confesses and then maybe they're forgiven. With God, the order is reversed. Grace abounds before the bodies even turn, before the word of sin is even named. And this basic truth of God's forgiveness begins Psalm 32 because the psalmist is suggesting this not only frames the truth of this whole psalm, it does, but frames the truth really of all of our lives. This is why in the Eastern Orthodox Church when there is a baptism, they always read Psalm 32 after the baptism. It is their way of making clear to the baptized all... Yes, you will still sin, you will still fail, you will still fall, but God's forgiveness will prove stronger. God's forgiveness is the banner under which you journey, and sin will at best be a secondary thing, triumph over by the preceding forgiveness. Psalm 32 It begins with the power and speed of God's forgiveness. But then it's juxtaposed with verses 3 and 4 of this frail human body. You heard, when I kept silence, my body wasted away. My voice, I was groaning day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer. The body, literally the bones of the psalmist, are turning to dust. They're being eaten away. His voice is groaning. He feels the heavy, convicting hand of God. He he feels like he's in the middle of the summer with no relief. How is this one who lives under the banner of such strong, astounding grace, how so weak? Well, he tells us he will not speak his failure. He will not speak his sin. The unconfessed sin is so pervasive, so powerful, that it is felt in his body as depleting, as weakening, as weighing. To be sure, the book of Jonah and Jesus himself cautions us against assuming every illness, every bodily pain, every bodily misfortune is then some kind of direct result of sin. You remember John chapter 9, Jesus, his disciples, they see a blind man someone with this bodily misfortune, and they say, so Rabbi, who sinned? Was it, was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Bodily misfortune, I mean, it must mean there's sin over there. And Jesus responds famously, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Much caution is raised against e- easily equating bodily illness misfortune with sin. And at the same time, Psalm 32 also makes it clear that our spiritual and physical well-being, they do overlap. The unconfessed sin, wrong failings, whether individual, corporate, they do eat at us. They do not at us. In a very real way, they weaken the body or even the body. (laughs) Well, then why not just speak the sin? Confess the failure, the wrongdoing. You stand under this banner of grace that that 
wraps you so. I can remember one of my very earliest lies. And I know I've shared this story with some of you before. Second grade, I was confused by some of the math problems we were doing in class. So I very nonchalantly stretch out like this and then stretch myself into a standing position so that I can stretch that way because she looks like she gets how this works. And the teacher turns around and says, Bobby, are you looking at Kristen's paper? Are you, are you copying? Nope. But of course, absolutely, yes, 100% cheating, trying to get the answers I don't understand. And I know, I knew, I don't know if I could have articulated, but I knew that teacher cared for me, had my best interest in mind. I knew my parents loved me unconditionally, would never stop loving me for anything. I lied. And what was striking was how amazingly natural it was to just cover it. And why? I don't think I could put it in these words at all at that time. But I was in this identity crisis with my peers. I wanted to be seen as smart and seen as good. That's supposed to be who I am. And I had to hold on to who that person was that I was supposed to be. I, I, I had to lie. In his commentary in Psalm 32, Martin Luther recognizes, uh, writes about the mind of this particular psalmist this way. I did not want to recognize or acknowledge my sin. I thought I was pious. I, I saw myself as a good person. I, not perfect, but, but a good person. And so I could not name that. Not really, not truly, not honestly. Luther is pointing out in his commentary on Psalm 32 the inherent danger that all of us face if we have been raised in pious community. There's much good to be said about that, but there is a danger for any who have been raised in pious community or good families or those with a good family name. Because it can become very natural for us to begin building an identity wherein we must be seen as pious people and good people. That's what we're about. We need to be people befitting of the family name. People befitting of a church-going person. And so, yes, we know God's grace abounds even faster than the word sin can be spoken. And what good news for all the prodigals out there. But the body will not lie. The body weakens trying to maintain an image that is not actually the reality. The body tires wearing this heavy armor the body's strength is sapped. Now we're not told what changes between verse 4 and verse 5. Maybe the psalmist just tires of being so tired. Maybe, maybe the psalmist has a new awareness of the banner of grace under which he lives. The Christian tradition has long held that when a person actually confesses openly, honestly... Small things, big things. When confession happens at all, it is fundamentally a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is just not natural to us. It is natural to say, no, wasn't doing that. 
And so somehow, and reasons we don't know, the psalmist lets the spirit have the spirit's way. Because then we hear verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I, I didn't hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He names it openly. And the forgiveness which is his from all eternity is experienced right there in the here and now. It's not like he does this confession and finally he is forgiven. No, remember, forgiveness is the banner that is his under which he lives. He confesses and opens himself to a fresh expression of the forgiveness that is already his. And then I love the next verse in the psalm. I know we didn't read it, but, but I'm, I'm going to read it in a second. Remember how the psalmist was so profoundly weak and frail and groaning. You have to imagine if there were any kind of waters that swept through his life, they would just carry him away. But he experiences this fresh forgiveness of God. And so listen to the very next word he speaks. It is so strong. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. This experience of forgiveness teaches the psalmist of God's power to such a degree that then when he goes and he turns and he faces the world, he's able to say, look, the mightiness of waters out there won't overtake us. I mean, isn't that something? The experience of God's racing and embracing and clothing him. The experience of having his past blotted out. The experience of having his past healed. The experience of having this past failure, this wrong, not destroy and cripple him, but actually itself be torn to shreds and forgotten. The experience of God's forgiveness is is so strong that when he turns to face the world... He has total confidence in God's strength before absolutely every other kind of water. You see, the church who knows, who not only knows the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, but experiences it in their bone time and again, they have that profound confidence in the face of many waters because, again, they've experienced firsthand the Olympic-like love that outpaces everything. Is this our experience of God's forgiveness? Sometimes perhaps it is. Sometimes we have known something uh, much like this in our open and honest confession to God. But sometimes I wonder if we don't ache for a fuller experience of whatever this power of forgiveness is. Whatever the fullness of this gift is. And I think this is where James's word about confession then becomes so important. You heard, at one point he exhorts the church, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Or or the message uh, translates this verse this way. Make this your common practice. The message is trying to underscore the continual nature of the exhortation. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. There is this exhortation in James to ongoing practice of mutual confession and implied 
known forgiveness. To be sure, John Calvin in his commentary on that particular verse says, this verse should not be used as some sort of way to theologically justify the idea of a confessional where one priest hears the confessions of all the people and and has some kind of power to grant forgiveness. No, he says this verse exhorts us to mutual reciprocal confession wherein two very broken people confess back and forth. Not necessarily the whole church wide open with everybody else, but certainly one to one. And now I think this is where some of us grow anxious I mean, how could, how could we possibly tell a sister or a brother of our failings, our, our sins, our, our weakness, the things about which we know we should be more mature, we know should be better by now, we should have more of a grip on, and why would we want to do that? Because honestly, if some of that was said aloud to a sister or brother, the small stuff, the big stuff, the lingering stuff, the ongoing stuff, they'd judge me, they'd be disgusted, it ruined the relationship. Maybe, maybe, if the sister or brother with whom you confess is pious, the pious Christian cannot handle real sin and real failing. But as Bonhoeffer puts it, anybody who has been horrified by the dreadfulness of his or her own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified even by the rankest of sins of a brother or sister. Anyone in the church who has a real sense of the depth of their own stuff, their own sin, their own evil, anyone who's tasted any measure of addiction, anyone who is honest about their complicity in some of the structures and evils of our society and our world today, they will never be turned away by any mention of any sin because you know what, at some level they get it. They get it right here. And this there, then, is the gift of confessing, not only to God, but then also to one another. Because what power is known, what healing is known when confession is uttered, and the one who hears you does not turn away in horror, you monster, does not turn away in judgment, does not turn away in confusion, does not turn away in gossip, but actually stays right on, and hears you and receives it and prays for you and loves you. And that's what James is talking about. Did you notice what he says? Confess your sins and pray for one another, not so that you may be forgiven. God, fundamentally, is the one who forgives. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be heard and loved and prayed over in such a way that the experience of God's forgiving power is known. I like uh, Rick Warren's sort of pithy summary about this point. If you want to be forgiven, you tell God. If you want to feel forgiven, or Bonhoeffer's word, if you want a confidence you are forgiven, you want the experience of forgiveness, the power known therein, You've got to tell one other person. If you want to be forgiven, you tell God. If you want to feel forgiven, you've got to tell one other person. If I were to be asked, what is the one thing the church could really be doing in this day and age to grow in strength and maturity and relevance in our times? 
What's, what would be one thing the church really could be doing to know a fuller measure of the power and dynamism of Jesus Christ alive among us and in this world? I mean, where's the one place the church could do something to know a deeper trust in Jesus and, and walk with a different sense of courage amidst the waters that flood around? Honestly, I think my response would be, Practice confessing our sins one to another. That is so painful, so humbling, so awkward, so vulnerable, such a profound expression of weakness. And if I'm convinced that if the cross has anything to say at all, it is that the way of weakness is the way of abundant and unparalleled strength. For when the church learns to give and receive an honest confession, the power and healing of God is overwhelming. Look at how the psalmist, Psalm 32, speaks of his unshakable confidence before any waters of this world because he knew the power of confession and forgiveness. Look how James declares that in the experience of confession there is healing. Confess your sins to one another. So simple. So difficult. If I had to guess, there's one thing that I doubt will be mentioned at David Payne's park dedication ceremony later this month. It is the fact that David could not shoot a basketball to save his life. Here you have this body of athleticism that's just unparalleled, gliding halfway down the court. No one is near the guy. He is remarkable in his speed. All he has to do is make a layup with no one defending him. And he would miss. He would bank it so hard off the backboard. It's just a layup. Then again, he was so fast that the grace of it all was that he would miss terribly, but he'd get his own rebound. He'd have a chance to try at least one or two more times before anyone could defend him. It amazed me, someone of such strength and power. The layup. We, the church, have an abundantly forgiving God. And the resurrection power and life of Jesus Christ courses through our veins. That's the promise of scripture. And you would think the church, of all people, would would be the Olympians of confession and forgiveness. We, We would be the masters of honest conversation, broken truth, patient, gracious listening, love with all of our being. For he is in our veins. You'd kind of think forgiveness and confession, that would be our bread and butter layup. The truth is the church is often terrible at this fundamental We stutter in any measure of honesty before one another. We don't know how to best respond when when an individual shares their sin or there's a corporate confession of sin. We feel some weird mix of, of, of judgment and empathy and confusion. Confessing with one another, like every aspect of the Christian life, it takes practice to grow into the grace that is ours. It is not a natural motion to us. Make it then your common practice because God has an astounding track record with awkwardly imperfect 
people. Two people who are now not great at shooting layups, doing the same thing at the same time. Jesus does so much with humility and weakness and broken steps of faith. Indeed, every time the singular thing Jesus does with humility and weakness is raise us to new life and new power and new love. Amen.